Well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Today we are talking to Brittany Founts, a biomedical engineer who develops technologies that help nurses saving lives in the skies. In three, two, one. Brittany, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, guys. What do you do as a biomedical engineer for AFRL? So my technical title is Medical Integration Manager within the Sub-11th Human Performance Wing. So the Sub-11th Human Performance Wing is actually under the Air Force Research Laboratory. It's one of its technical directorates. And what my main job is to do as a medical integration manager is to actually be, actually be a facilitator between your medical scientists and technologists and the different groups that you would work with. So across the Department of Defense, there's a lot of these different groups to help get our researchers funding, or they ask these different questions. So I'm kind of the go-between the facilitator to work with those groups. So you actually help coordinate quite a lot of people then uh, on a day-to-day -day basis? Yes, so um, one of the main groups I actually focus on are the medical SNTs, so the medical science and um, technologists. And then within the wing, the Sub-11th Human Performance Wing, there's a specific division that a lot of those researchers fall in. So there's actually a new division, the Warfighter Optimization Group, RHM, within the Sub-11th, so I work with a lot of those researchers. And what's your day-to-day? So every day is definitely different, so it's a lot of problem solving. So either doing some outreach, we would get different taskers that come through, working with the joint program committees, there's the different major commands, different service core functions, so all these different groups across the Department of Defense that would ask the wing, do you know who's doing research in what groups? And so being able to do the outreach to those people and connect them is one of my main jobs help facilitate collaboration basically of what our researchers are doing with other needs within the Department of Defense yep. essentially. Yep. So how many of these different research projects let's say or different groups do you directly interact in or is this like you mentioned more of a supervisor role where you're saying hey they're working here you can pull the right resources to them? So there's multiple projects so within that division I think they have over 200 open projects. Oh wow. So that was actually the group that I came from before I started as a medical integration manager. So knowing who the right people are to connect them with. Okay. And what are some of the fun stuff you worked on before you came into this role? So before I started here I was in the in route care research division at the School of Aerospace Medicine and my job as a research biomedical engineer was to actually look at medical devices for flight for in route care. So some of the issues is that devices that are developed for civilian medical groups, they're not developed for altitude and they don't take into consideration the vibration or the different environments that you have during flight. And so a lot of the projects I worked on were looking at different medical devices, either taking commercial off the shelf products and looking at them in altitude, do they still function, or looking at government medical devices as well. So some of the ones I worked with uh, were some of the app development efforts that we had, as well as looking at a stethoscope, a high noise stethoscope for in-route care. Yeah, so you think about it, so you're in essentially a war zone and a C-17 has landed and you're picking up patients and you're a flight nurse on that. It's not a calm, quiet, noise controlled environment. So what, what are these nurses experiencing and then what does that stethoscope help with? So that environment can get a little hectic. So in route care, you're basically looking at a patient from point of injury, so it's someone who could be pretty much in the middle of nowhere, and then they make their way to the in route care, and then they have to load them up on a C-17, C-130. So you have to deal with a lot of patients at the same time, and you deal with a lot of different types of patients. So uh, within the in route care, there's two 
two groups, which are air medical evacuation and the critical care air transport teams. And so they look at different patients. So air medical evacuation focuses on your more ambulatory patients, the ones that can either walk or they're not as critical. And then those critical care air transport patients, it's basically like taking care of patients like you would in an ICU, but constrained in the back of an aircraft. So you're looking at medical devices, a lot of medical devices for one patient, and basically during flight having to go to each patient um, and checking on them and making sure they're okay. And it can be really loud. Very loud. So they, they're called the stresses of flight, um, so there's multiple, but some of the biggest ones are noise and vibration. You have issues with hypoxia, so you don't have the oxygen that you would at ground. And so a lot of your devices, they don't work the same in the back of an aircraft like they would at the ground. And what did testing for this look like then for you? So I'm sure you sent some out in the field, but mm -hmm. do we have a simulated place here to work with that? Yes, so in the School of Aerospace Medicine, they actually have, it's called the High Bay. Um, so they have actual C-17 and C-130 aircrafts that they've taken in, they've taken off the wings, and it's the fuselages that they've retrofitted for simulation. So they have a lot of the air medical evacuation personnel. They come in and they do training on these fuselages. And they can simulate all the medical devices that you would. They have different mannequins. Um, they can run through these different simulations with a low light, environment, you know, high noise, and actually go through and run through those simulations that they would before they actually go in on the back of an aircraft and fly. And then, so like your stethoscope that you mentioned that you worked on, what was it trying to do for these medical professionals in the back of the, the cargo planes yeah. and things like that? One of the biggest issues that I mentioned is noise. So a traditional stethoscope that you would normally have in your doctor's office does not work in a high noise environment. And some of the added issues is that on the back of an aircraft, that noise is actually, it's those noises for the heart and lungs are very similar to what you would experience on the inside of the body and the noise that you would simulate in an aircraft. So it's very hard to distinguish between what is a heart and a lung sound versus what's aircraft noise. And so we actually looked at two different stethoscopes. The first one was one that was developed by the Army and it was using Doppler ultrasound technology. And so you could switch it between the two modes for a high noise environment. And then the second one was a commercial product that was developed for civilian aircraft flights. So we looked at both and we started in the high bay, which is what we had in the School of Aerospace Medicine on the ground. And we had different in route care healthcare providers actually use both stethoscopes onto live human beings and actually go through and do a cardiac and a pulmonary assessment. And so from there, one of the stethoscopes performed a lot better. And so we actually coordinated with the Kentucky Air National Guard and then out at Nellis Air Force Base to do the actual in-flight testing. So Nellis Air Force Base has HH-60s, which are your rotary wing helicopters, and then Kentucky Air National Guard has C-130s. So we are actually able to get onto those flights and have our healthcare providers assess both mock patients with both devices and give us that real-time operational feedback that we would need to then continue on with our research. And you said that this is now being used in the field or this is still in the testing process? So we've, they've already finished the one um, with the COTS product. So the next steps, they wanna do actual filter development. So the way that one works, it's got five different filters, two for heart, two for lung, and then a broadband. And they actually wanna partner up with a company and look at specific filters for different airframes. So if you're on a C-130, you could switch it over and say, I'm on a C-130 
filter out the specific noise. That's really neat. So that's something you said you worked on beforehand. And this right. is kind of the an idea of what you're overseeing now, like right. projects like this, but you mentioned upwards of almost 200 in some cases. Yep, so um, just getting to still work with those researchers and connect them with the right people. Would be like the Air National Guard in that case, or mm -hmm. something like that to help mm -hmm. do the research. Okay, that's really cool. And. Uh, kind of going back then, earlier in your history, um, so you've worked a lot in the medical field, that being your passion. Uh, what sparked this for you originally? So my mom is a registered nurse, and she's done home health care. So my entire life growing up, I got to see her take care of patients, and just seeing how passionate she was, and just the impact she had was incredible. And I've always really liked math and science, and so the medical field, I was just kind of drawn to it. And then as I got older, I actually wanted to be a vet growing up because I was really interested in animals and I like the medical side, but I had really bad allergies. So I was like, oh, being oh, a vet is probably not the best idea. Put a hamper on it. Yep, yep. So I actually looked at um, being an orthopedic surgeon. So in high school, that's where my interest was. Going after high school then, um, we heard that you were in the O-RISE program. Uh, can you describe what that is and what that has meant for you? Yep, so the O-RISE program is the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education. And basically, it is an internship that can get a lot of different individuals in. So for me, I found out about this program my senior year of college. So I went to Wright State University, and I had done a couple internships with TechEdge and Wright Brothers Institute through their Summer at the Edge and Year at the Edge programs. And from there, one of my professors, he was actually my advisor for my undergraduate program, he knew that I had done those internships and he said, you know, I have a colleague who I think would be interested in working with you. So this individual, she worked on base and she needed a summer intern and they wanted to look at musculoskeletal injuries. And so I had majored in biomedical engineering, pre-med with a concentration in biomechanics. And so they thought it was a really good fit. And so I emailed her and said, you know, this is my background. I hear you're looking for an intern. Would I be a good fit? Could you provide more information about the program um, and stuff like that? So I was able to actually come on base and do my first interview with her. She gave me some in information about the internship. So I was actually able to apply on um, Orise's website. And then I ended up getting the position. And it started out as a just a summer internship between my bachelor's and my master's program. And so I was here for about three months full time. I ended up loving the program and ended up working out that they kept me on part time while I was still working on my master's. And then they kept me on ever since. That's great. And we have a link to the ORISE program on our website, afresearchlab.com, under um, higher education opportunities, if anyone's listening. And one of the interesting things about ORES is it's not just for people in college. So they actually have, they call it a knowledge preservation group. So it can be used for postdoc, and it can also be used for people who have retired, and they want to come back and work. And so they can apply through the ORES program. Oh, wow. So a wide range of people can actually take advantage of that. That's mm -hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. And what kind of hands-on work did you get to do with the ORISE program? So my first project that I started on was looking at musculoskeletal injuries for in-route care providers. So uh, one of the biggest issues, which this is true in the civilian side too, is that nurses, they are on their feet all day, they're lifting heavy amounts, and so back and neck issues are very high. And so we wanted to see if that was the same for in-route care nurses versus the people who fly, versus the people who, who don't fly. So we actually got to work with in route care providers here on base and go into the high bay and we ran through some different simulations and we watched how they were able to do their aircraft configuration. And so from there we did a quantitative assessment 
to see what the biggest risk was. Was it in their wrist? Was it their knees, their back? And could we provide some recommendations to try to decrease that risk of musculoskeletal injuries? That's really interesting because most people wouldn't think about doing research on the nurses themselves or people working of mm -hmm. how to alleviate a lot of stress in that environment. Mm -hmm. um, so did you guys find any definitive data there that's being worked on or any new devices? We did. So some of the recommendations um, that we had was either could you do an automatic lift system in the back of the aircraft, what they do to set up their litters where your patients are loaded, they have, it looks like a metal bracket and then kind of look like a seatbelt that you have to literally climb up on a stanchion, grab, and then pull down to then connect to the litter to keep them uh, stable. So one of our recommendations was, could you make it like a retractable seatbelt where you would just pull down, then it would automatically go back up instead of having to climb all the way up there. So we did a final report, um, findings are available, and then hopefully in the future they could actually do some of those material devices and development to help that. Well, that's a great example of showing the chances or what you got to do as an ORISE scholar. Um, was there any other big things you'd say you wouldn't have had a chance to do otherwise uh, joining this program? Actually getting to come on base. So looking at different job opportunities during the time, there weren't a lot of civilian positions that were open. And one of the nice things that ORISE allowed me to do was come on base and get to see all of the different research that was being done and kind of see where I could potentially go in the future because I wasn't sure if I wanted to stay in one area or where I could work. And just kind of opening my eyes to all of the different possibilities of work within AFRL. Yeah. Did you have any um, opportunities for a mentorship during your time as I, an ORISE scholar? I did. The mentor actually brings the ORISE student in. And so throughout the summer, there were different lunch and learns that we could go to. And then I worked with her um, as my mentor. And over the years, she's actually been a really great mentor for me. And in my new positions, she's my new supervisor. So great, mm -hmm. full circle. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then we also know that you're really involved in the Junior Forest Council, which is kind of, it's an organization for newer employees to the Air Force, whether they're enlisted, officers, or civilians, and um, could you explain what it does? Yeah, um, so within Wright-Patterson, we have multiple Junior Force Councils. I'm part of the Air Force Research Laboratory Junior Force Council, but within Wright-Pat, all of the different technical directorates have their own. And what it does is it really allows our junior workforce, so your civilians and your enlisted and officers, um, who have less than 10 years of experience to come in and it actually provides them with a voice to senior leadership. So your senior leadership, they are making these high level decisions and it gives your junior workforce an opportunity to attend some of those senior le uh, level meetings that they wouldn't have otherwise, as well as you know really share what their opinions are to help shape some of those decisions. Right, because you know the I, I used to be involved in Junior Force Council as well, and you know they might ask you, you know, what's your opinion on how we're handling this program, or what are your top concerns from your perspective as a, a new employee, which doesn't necessarily, it, you know, the age demographic shifts shifts newer, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a certain age. It could be any age, just new to the government. And then you guys also provide lots of professional development opportunities. You normally wouldn't get access to, you know, sitting down and talking to our commander with, you know, 15 other people or something like that. So right. it's pretty cool. And how's that changed you, you'd say, as a worker researcher now? they had the opportunity to work with them? I think it's had a huge impact. So I actually started back in 2016 as a communications officer, and then I eventually 
became the vice president and then the president and now officer at large. And I think the leadership skills that it teaches you because you're working with so many different groups, you're learning about the different research across the base, but having to present to those senior leaders, you have to have some leadership abilities yourself. So I think that was probably the biggest takeaway for me. And being the officer at large, that means you are the head of this section of JFC, or is that? So Miss um, Sarah Sullivan's the president this year for Air for All Junior Force Council, and so she leads our group. But officer at large, one of the biggest reasons that I took that position is to actually start an industry mentorship program. We identified that there was a need to actually try to connect your junior force with industry partners and kind of mentor, have some mentorship there. So that was the pilot program that I was brought in to work work with as officer at large. And with the uh, project itself, you said this is new as of this year? Mm -hmm. Yep, so this actually started about a year and a half ago. I was asked to do a talk with Miss Tiffany Farrell. She's the Dayton Tech Guide lead. Uh, we were down at the downtown AFRL location in 444. And we were just talking about, the theme was accelerating serendipity. And it was really, how are your junior force personnel connecting with one another and from the AFRL side, as well as your external partners. So Dayton Tech Guide was the industry company. So we were just sitting down talking and someone asked, is there a way that you could have your junior force connect with industry that's not through like a CRADA or an, a formal agreement or anything, how are they getting mentorship? You know, what if they have questions about their career that, you know, people with industry experience could help shape? So we kind of took that idea and ran with it. And so we made a pilot program. Um, and so I've been working with the Wright Brothers Institute for uh, the past couple months to actually set up this pilot program. And the whole idea is to connect your junior force with industry partners. So um, we will be having the Advanced Science and Technology Symposium, which is kind of our kickoff for the event. And that will have some of our junior force kind of present their research and their work and then connect with industry partners. That's great, because a lot of, I mean, as the issue is brought up, a lot of people who may be new here don't know how they could reach out to industry or know when's the right time. Mm -hmm. And you've already, since you're just setting this up now, have you already seen some good success or at least some excitement building up behind it? Yeah, um, so we've actually had a couple events. So the first one was back in October, called it Death by Donuts, because it was around the October timeframe. But really it was to talk through the valley of death. So if you have a piece of technology and you want to eventually get it out there for the world to use into your warfighter, how do you avoid that valley of death? And so we worked with Wright Brothers Institute and we had, it was kind of like a morning session and we brought in our junior force and they were able to listen to some of the ways that you could try to avoid that from an industry perspective. And I've heard a lot of takes too from researchers about um, the issue of almost projecting your own work and now that can be a death of a project. So is this also a way to help them kind of build their platform, let's say if they are a researcher, mm -hmm. to talk about it? Yep. Yeah, it's a great way um, to kind of understand some of those resources that they can reach out to. So we're hoping to put together, you know, like a, a pamphlet or something that we can give to our new researchers to say, if you're interested in this, here's some resources for you. We're also interested in helping facilitate those conversations between your junior force and your industry partners and from a mentoring perspective like how would you sit down and have your first meeting and talk through some of that to kind of build some of our confidence and presentation skills with our junior force so is it in part about technology transfer then like we create this great idea or we remodel a stethoscope but we need someone to actually produce it sort of thing yeah um so the idea so say you could have 
you're working on a piece of technology, but you don't know really where to go. We're just connecting them with the industry mentorship. And then if we see a connection there, we could help facilitate their connection with our tech transfer office here within Air Force Research Lab. Uh, we could help facilitate tech sprints. So have a week long where they just get together and try to hammer out some of these ideas and do rapid prototyping or something like that. And then at the end of the program, they could actually showcase their work with a final um, like technology showcase. That's great. And has this kind of, uh, going back to what you mentioned earlier, when you had a lot of mentors in the ORISE project and kind of getting to where you're at now, um, how does it kind of feel to be on the flip side where you're mentoring others and helping start a lot of these programs? I, I love it. So for me, being able to just talk about what my experiences were, a lot of it, you don't know what you don't know. So getting out there and talking to new people and seeing what their background is, backgrounds are is really helpful. I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's pretty quick turnaround. Because how long have you been at the lab? Um, so I started in 2013, so it'll be six years. Well, it just goes to show, um, if somebody's looking to kind of fit that similar career track, let's say being a uh, biomedical like engineer or trying to go into the biomedical field, uh, how can they kind of get to where you're at now? So I would say keep your eyes and ears open and be open to new opportunities. Um, when I was going through high school and college, I had no idea that a medical integration manager existed or all the different jobs that you could do as a biomedical engineer. Back then I just assumed, like I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, so I thought you know, going that route would be the best way, but just the different engineering positions that are available, just being open to those new opportunities and continuously learning and getting out and meeting new people. And there's always a fun question we like to ask people kind of near the end of our conversation. Uh, do you have any favorite pieces of technology the Air Force has worked on or a favorite researcher? Well, so this isn't just Air Force specific. It was the Department of Defense, uh, but GPS. So that has been probably the most impactful in my life personally. I remember when I was younger doing road trips, we still used maps and none of my family had a smartphone or anything like that. And now walking around today, like, even navigating base, you need a smartphone because none of the buildings are numbered in order. It's pretty tough. Yes, so <laughs> GPS is, is a huge one. So you sit in the back seat with like the AAA trip pick where like <laughs> yellow highlighter of like avoid construction at this route. Did yes. you have those? Yeah. Yes, yeah. And I remember when like GPS first came out it was a big thing. My mom would have me get online like, oh, let's do MapQuest. Can you print out the directions for me? So it, we've come a long way. Yeah, it saves yeah. a lot of time. I remember back in high school, the biggest thing was my mom had the Garmin, and it was like yes. she would open up the special cabinet and be like, I'm trusting you with the Garmin. <laughs> like, if you lose this, you'll never come home. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I was very bad with directions. So, um, but that's definitely a huge thing that a lot of people don't even think about being developed. Like, oh, how did, what's the story behind GPS and a lot of that. So, um, especially that being something developed by FRL, that's a big thing that's kind of cool to push on our side. So, Brittany, thanks for joining us today and filling us in on how um, you came to work at the lab. Thanks so much for having me. And to keep up to date with future and past podcasts and to check us out on social media, make sure to see us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And make sure to stay curious. Logging off. <laughs>